time. Teach us his ways. Mr. Mark does. What a blessing Mr. Mark is. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just before you, God, and we just thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you that you set it apart, Father God, so that we can learn, Father God, your word, Father. And so, Lord, we just ask, Father God, that you would just open up our understanding, Father God, that we would take turns, Lord God, that we would be patient, Father God. And I just pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would just reveal more and more, God. And we just say yes to you today, God. And we just say yes to your word, Father. So we give you glory and we give you honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love the no hesitation. Just goes right to it. Mr. Mark is the, the best. If you don't do Mr. Mark, he has a MySpace. It's called Mr. Mark is the best. You can go find him there. Uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 1. My voice is somewhat back. Uh, pulling up Hebrews. Hold on one sec. <clears throat> All right. I believe we ended. If someone knows absolutely where we ended, let me know. But I believe. Um, shoot. Was it verse 8 that we ended? I'm only confused because I'm going through the book of Hebrews myself um, and with you guys. So I can't tell which markings are from our study and which one's from mine. But I believe we're on verse uh, verse 8. Either way, we'll read the whole chapter together. <laughs> uh, someone says verse 6. Maybe it'd be fair to back up to verse 6. Okay, let's do that. Uh, is Fade here? Or where I'm are you here. at? Did Fair you change your name? No, a DJ. Okay, that's why I was, I was freaking out. Where's Fade? DJ, do you have a Bible in front of you? Uh, I do. Okay, you want to open it to Hebrews chapter 1? I can find it. It's toward the end of the Bible. Is it more, toward, more toward the end. It's right before the book of James. It's Wait, the book. Yes. It's right. You said it's right before James. That's right. What chapter are we on? We're on chapter one. You can read the whole chapter. From verse six? Uh just read the whole chapter starting in verse one. And then we'll we'll officially back it you up know, to verse six you, when you're you done know reading. I have the, you know I have the KJV version, right? That's totally fine. Okay. All right, uh, you guys ready? We are. God, who at who at thirty times and in divers manners spake into the into in time past unto the fathers of the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, who hath 
appointed he, her of all things by whom also he made the world, who, be, who began the brightness of his glory and the express of the image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had himself purged our sin sat down on the right of his on the right hand of the maj of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels at I'm so sorry about that continue being made so much better than the angels as he hath inheritance uh, obtained a more excellent name than than they dj or, yep i i take back what i said we're gonna do the esv you can read it in the chat the kjv just messing me up um so i put it in the chat for you to read uh starting right. at verse five where you left off all right for to which angels did god ever say you are my son today. I have begotten you, or again I will be to I will be to him a father, and he shall be to my sons, be be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, "Let all God's angels worship him." Of the angels, he says, he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says. Your throne, O God, is forever the is the is forever the scepter of upright of upright and the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved the righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has been anointed you with the oil of the gladness beyond your companies, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the Heavens are a work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like your robe, you roll up like a garment that will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels he has said, ever said, Sit, sit at my right hand until I make until I make you enemies on the footstool for your feet. And you are not all ministering spirits sent out to sent out to serve for the, for the sake of those who are inherent salvation. Great job, buddy. I immediately regretted saying read the KJV like two verses in, so I had to get the ESV, and it was just throwing me off. Um, not for everyone. Definitely not for me. Uh, we're in verse 6, though, so let's back it up. Back it up, back it up to verse 6. Um, what the author of Hebrews is doing, and i got to keep saying that because we don't for sure know who he is. Um, is he's making a, an argument that Jesus is better than angels. And uh, verse 6 is a continuation. So he's going to quote, let me look at my handy dandy reference. He's going to quote uh, Deuteronomy, no, Psalm 97, verse 7. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 43. 
Is that Deuteronomy 32? Hold on. Either way, he's quoting from the Old Testament, but for some reason, mine has two. I guess. Uh, oh, yeah. It's originally Deuteronomy. Okay, cool. So what the author's doing here, and again, if you have thoughts to share, questions, comments, put your hand up in the chat, and we will answer, let each of you guys take turns um, so we can all share, because I don't want to be the one talking the whole time, honestly. But it says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is God declaring, actually de demanding the angels to worship the firstborn, the son. It's really cool. Any thoughts, questions before we move on to verse 7? You're going to get a bunch of Old Testament quotations here. He's going to reference the Old Testament quite a bit specifically the Psalms. So verse five has two quotations, then verse six, verse seven, all the way into the rest of the chapter, just quotation after quotation. And the big argument is not argument, but the case being put forth is, yeah, Jesus is on another level than angels. He, he ain't on the same level as any created being, including the spiritual beings, um, because he's distinct from creation. As we saw in verse, what was it? Verse uh, two and three. So any questions? If not, we'll go on to verse seven. It says of the angels, God says, and now he's going to make a comparison. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And then verse eight, it says, but of the sun. In other words, this is how God speaks about his angels. But let me tell you what he says about his son. His son is no simple uh, created messenger and minister. His son is so much more. His son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And this is from Psalms, uh, I want to say, look at right now, Psalm 45. Maybe for you guys' homework, you guys go back and read these passages, these Old Testament quotations on your own in context. But the father does say to the son, your throne, Oh God is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's pretty cool because that's what God has been looking for and wanting uh, for the nation of Israel to have, but no king could ever measure up. The closest we got was David. And, um, and who else I can't think of that young is a Josiah. Um, so, yeah. Any thoughts, questions, comments? If not, we'll go to the next verse. We'll keep reading. Any thoughts? I bet. All right. You guys have thoughts today. That's fine. We'll keep reading. Actually, wanna... Yeah. Actually, hold on, DJ. Um, 
I'm going to try and create a question to stimulate conversation for you guys. So I'm not talking the whole time. Um, in verse eight, let me ask you guys this and then let me know in verse eight and seven and eight, there's a contrast between the sun and the angels, right? There's a clear contrast. Um, and yet in verse seven, the angels, what's addressed about the angels is the fact that they are ministering servants on behalf of God. Whereas Jesus in verse eight is put forth as the one sitting on the throne at the right hand of the, of the father. Um, so I want you guys to think about the connection between the throne Jesus is said to be sitting on in verse eight and the kingdom he rules, as well as the verse seven, the fact that they're servants of God. Like what's, what's the point of emphasis there? Because when he contrasts the son and the angels, you think he would, uh, I guess, address two similar attributes. Like, I don't know, I'm trying to think he would say, you know, in our mind, he'd go, well, the angels were created. Jesus wasn't. Those are, those are two similar uh, comparisons being drawn. But it's almost like what he addresses about the angels in contrast with the sun is an entirely different topic. Uh, it doesn't seem to go together. And yet I think there is a connection between the way he speaks about angels in verse 7 and the way he speaks about the sun in verse 8. And again, it's to make a point that Jesus is better than angels. Um, and somehow he's doing that by addressing the fact that God refers to the Son, number one, as God, um, and that he has a throne that endures forever. So it's just interesting to me when I read that, and he brings up the throne of the Son, but the fact that angels are made to be you know, ministers, winds of, and fire, flames of fire, whatever your translation is. Some guy named Grogu in the chat said, verse 5 is a big key. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Mm, I see where you're going with that. Do you want to share, Grogu, or do you want everyone else to kind of follow the trail? He says, similar as Moses being a servant, but not a son. Dang it, John. Boiled the fun. Do you want to jump on and elaborate on the mic or, or not? It's fine. It's just that, yeah, the uniqueness of Jesus this stood out both in um, with the angels where he's saying that they're, they're ministering servants and how Moses is seen just as a servant. Um, though, you know, because of his relationship, he is a son, an adopted son within it because of faith. But, Mm-hmm. The fact that the scripture makes a distinguishing difference in that Moses just held the office of servant, mm-hmm. whereas Jesus offers um, or uh, uh, occupies the office of son. And then this also goes back yeah. to like the clue we see yeah. in um, the story of the prodigal son, where in his folly, in his coming to his senses, realizing that if I could just be a servant in my father's house, that's mm-hmm. good enough. And the father says, no, that is not good enough. You are my son. And he gives him the ring and the significance of the ring 
and him wearing that signet ring of the household gives him the authority to speak on behalf of the father and it is to be treated as the father himself has spoken it so there's that uniqueness in it and this is what god is highlighting you are my son and then we see how scripture says that all authority uh, in heaven and on earth has been given to him by the father so he has the authority and he is the face um in regards to if you've seen me if you and it's not a visual thing though that is an element of it but that is not the main focus if you've perceived me if you've understood me if you know me if you have intimate knowledge of me then you have intimate knowledge of the father because i have not been here doing my will but the will of mm. the father mm -hmm. so you can know the heart of the father so this is the uniqueness in him whereas moses did not do the father's will not to the perfection that jesus did Mm -hmm. All right, study over. Let's go home. That's if you go back to verse five, the first two quotations are explicitly referencing the sonship of Jesus, and so the it's interesting the way that the author of Hebrews is going to contrast Jesus with every other spiritual being in existence is not by going explicitly he's he's uncreated and they're created. But actually, he's working from a place of sonship. That's the emphasis. And then from sonship in verse 5, we get to verse 6. It's almost like there's a, there's a logical progression. There's he's the son, verse 5, angels are not. Verse 6, because of that, angels worship him. Pause, let's talk about the angels. Verse 7, they're just, you know, the servants, ministers, flames of fire that on behalf of God dispatched from his throne. Continuing on the son, verse 8, he's different. He's actually the one sitting on the throne dispatching and having authority over angels sitting alongside the father. So if you go back to verse 3, it actually already referenced that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, and so uh, the, the author's coming out to wing in when it comes to putting Jesus on the highest possible level for the audience to understand. Um, these are very strong images of Jesus being on a, in a different, completely different realm. Uh, his rank is just it's superior. And um, it's interesting that sonship gravitates towards and eventually becomes throne kingdom language, um, which that, that's just the logical progression the author's painting for us. Is sonship well? Logically, that conclude that the conclusion is that angels worship him, and that moves us to why because he sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, um, and the way that he rules in verse eight is specifically referred to as uprightly, or depending on your your translation, um, it could say something else. But it's not just the fact that he does rule, like you emphasize, John. It's it's the fact that Moses, every other servant on behalf of God, you know, at least image bearers, they were not perfect. Jesus is. And so the kind of rule, the kind of kingdom, the kind of way that he's going to govern is going to be to the utter perfection and perfect, you know, embodiment of the Father's ways. Um, and that's just not something that's said of, of the angels. They're not invited to sit on the throne. Um, like in Revelation, we see the Father and Son almost, there's this dual throne 
And then what's interestingly enough is we get to reign with Christ. There's that shared throne language where he actually invites us to come and have a degree of authority in, in the new creation, whereas angels don't. So you're going to see this progression of not just this picture being painted about Jesus as the firstborn, but because he is that uniquely appointed son, he then brings us up to the status of firstborn, first resurrected, so that we can effectively reign with him above angels. Because right now we're technically, uh, I think that will actually be a quote in Hebrews. He'll reference one of the Psalms to say that he's made, God has made us lower than the angels for now. But specifically he'll reference Jesus when he makes that statement. But humanity is, is a part of that. But with Jesus, we rise um, not just out of death, but to to the rank of being above angels with Christ seated in heavenly places. So this has a, a bunch of implications on us. Um, but th- you have to understand the Son rightly. That's the point. Uh, Hebrews is really, really getting at the heart of the gospel and our faith and our eternity, which is the Son. You need to know the Son. Um, to know the Father. So, if if we look at that relationship between the Father and the Son, and the well pleasing, and how He took on the role of a servant, and He did the will of the Father to the degree that the Father trusts Him a, a com- a, completely, with you have the authority to rule and speak on my behalf. Go, do it, um, and then now because of the restored relationship and that being the epitome of any example set forth, we see in scripture that we are going to be a similar partaker of what was exemplified between the father and the son with Jesus having the authority. And he's saying, now I want to do with what the father has done with me. I want to share. And, and, it's, so it's a model. Jesus does not elevate himself, as Scripture tells us. He knows that he's still subservient to the Father. Um, and with us, we currently, because of the sin nature in this temporal flesh that we have, cannot properly execute his will because the flesh, like Scripture tells us in Galatians 5.17 and in Romans 7.15 to the end of the chapter, that there is this a thing in us, the sin nature that is in opposition to the thing of the spirit. You know, the spirit is strong, but the flesh is weak. The, the spirit is willing in us. So when we get our glorified body, then we will be in harmony with that new creation change and will be able to execute his will without the fight in us. And so we will be able to be co-rulers and judge justly by the standard in which he has established him, which is his character. It's not this outside thing from himself. It is the essence of who he is and will be in harmony with it to be able to execute his judgment in rulership, both over the nations and the angels, which Paul talks about us uh, having authority over that we'll be able to uh, extend to us. So it's not like we're just going to be a bunch of followers. There's going to be many people that are going to be elevated into places of authority and power and position executing his will. That's the whole idea of his will on earth as it is in heaven and how we are a model of that now, but that will continue in the new heaven and the new earth. 
executing as well without the sin nature getting in there and messing with the problem. The other thing that I wanted that I brought up is the fact that in Old Testament in a number of places that he appears and is called the angel of the Lord. And so th this can be a stumbling place for people not understanding. This is where getting into the, the original language, you can see that there's a difference at times with the worst the word for angel that is used. So like when Joshua encounters the angel, when um, Jacob wrestles with the angel, and here we like see in Isaiah 63, 9, in all their distress, he was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his mercy, he redeemed them. There's a uniqueness. This isn't just an angel like we know this is an example of a uniqueness to him being known as a messenger executing the will of god um but in him yeah. is the ability to save and to redeem which is not something mm -hmm. that the angels of heaven have the ability to do and forgive sin mm -hmm. yeah i've learned to reference the angel of the lord as the the, the angel of God's presence, yeah, but also the visible presence of the Lord versus the, the invisible presence. They seem, those, those two at play, every time the angel of the Lord seems to appear, um, there's the visible and the invisible, it seems like. This weird confusion, <laughs> it looks like tension, but it's not. It's actually complete agreement, right. um, which is why the Father can look at the Son and say, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And that that can mess with the... Uh, the JW's Bible, I'll tell you that. Um, but they'll scribble that out real fast because that doesn't fit the narrative. Right. And something that some people, and I'm not saying anybody in here thinks that, but for instance, in the case with Jacob, and it is, people want to say, well, no, that was just an angel that he was wrestling with. Well, there's a uniqueness there because at the end of it, that angel changes his name. Do we see any other precedent in the Bible where just a standard angel is changing people's name? What we do see is Jesus saying, I will give you a new name. He has that authority. I will write it on a stone that only you will know. So I think that's a strong evidence that that was not just an angel, but that was the Lord himself. Because yeah. he changes his name. Not bring up Abraham. You can bring up Sarah. Ambassador. Someone was trying to talk. Who was that? I said, you can bring up Abraham. You can bring up Sarah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Avram yeah. and Sarai at first. Or Sarai. But now That's Sarah right. and Abraham. Who else? You got Peter's name changed. You got um, these different names that are... Uh, talks about the the name that no one knows in Revelation that are that's given to us and the name that he has. Mm -hmm. You could do a whole study on that. And that's the uniqueness of this one who sits on the throne alongside the Father. Um, note him, look at verse 8 again, just to try and stay connected to the text. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The, the author could have pulled a quotation that just references the throne in a general sense. So, in other words, when you read uh, the Bible and see that there's any kind of reference to other places in the Scriptures, you, you, you got to note that there's intentionality behind the, the choice they've made. It's not just a random one that fits the narrative. It, it does make one big main point, which is that the sun is better than, than um, the angels, but also there's sub points being made 
with not just that reference, but what surrounds that reference in context. So when he could have just picked a verse that says, yeah, the, thro- the son has a throne. But specifically what's addressed here is that the throne is forever and ever, number one. And his scepter is not just any general scepter of like domineering authority and, you know, unlimited power. It's uprightness. It's integrity. It's righteousness. It's justice. Uh, it's what God has been looking for in Israel and no one could meet the standard. It's, it, this is what God all throughout the Old Testament dealing with his people. But I'm looking for justice and righteousness to flow. None of you are doing it. No king is doing it. No priest, no prophet. That's why they're exiled. So it, it's interesting that he, he really does emphasize the uprightness, not just the supremacy and the ultimate power of Jesus, but alongside that, it's the, it's the surety of his nature. It's the consistency of his character. In fact, later we'll see that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Um, and so this is good news for us. So we're not under the rule of an oppressive king that might change and grow dark on us. This is a king who's laid down his life and will remain upright, and his kingdom will be an extension of that. And by nature, his people will be also carriers of that righteousness as part of his kingdom. And so you're going to see in the rest of Hebrews a lot of reference to the fact, of course, that he's the ultimate son, the only firstborn begotten, but also that because of that, there actually gets to be other firstborns alongside him that he extends that status to, um, not at all to his neglect, but he shares that status so that there, he becomes the firstborn among, among many brothers, right? Um, so any other thoughts, questions? I know this is this can be like really heady for some people. I'm trying not to go the heady direction. I want to stay like very simple, but this is also very profound, and I, I want to dig into it with you guys. If I can diverge just a little bit, going back to the Abraham and Sarah name change. Um the beauty and uniqueness in that from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah is the addition of the hey, the letter hey in Hebrew, which represents the spirit. And it's even got a breathy sound uh, when pronouncing it. And so think of when God breathed into Adam to give life to him and then the name change. In this particular case, it was the breath the the hay sound that was added to their life to bring life and uniqueness to their relationship and with the Lord, uh, which also I think would even extend to the fact that they are old and both of them laughing. Wait a minute, we're supposed to have a child. Look how old we are. Yeah, well, I'm going to breathe new life into you so it's able to happen. Hey, Jaden, you want to weigh in with Elenu? You know where I'm talking about? I'd have to look. We were talking about sharing the throne. I believe that's part two, isn't it? Oh, oh. we were talking about that two nights ago. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about that two nights ago. That is not a new idea in Jewish circles. You're welcome. In fact, it talks specifically about the precious ones or the beloved ones. 
sharing his throne, sharing the weight of his kingdom. Yep. Right. As it is written in his Torah, the eternal existent one will reign forever and ever. And it is said the eternal existent one will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, the eternal existent will be one and his character will be one. Yeah, before that, though. Mm hmm. It talks about the precious ones. And it says, Into the glory of your name, give honor. The precious are the precious ones will accept upon themselves the yoke or the weight or the throne of your kingdom. And you will mm. reign over them soon, forever and ever. Well, yep. That's part of Alenu. That is the most said prayer in Judaism. There are two parts. And this idea is not a new one. Yep. This is why we I still agree. have a war with the Jewish people, because they they have concept of Messiah. Messiah is not a new concept. Mm -hmm. The question is who and when. Mm -hmm. All the basic principles were there. That's right. They really were. And the very first promise given to humanity right after the fall, right? The crushing of the head of the serpent was not just one victory that no one else gets to benefit from. It's actually a shared victory and triumph that the ultimate snake crusher shares with those who you know, take refuge in him. And all these ideas are laced together in this mm -hmm. one who is the son. And in fact, this evening we'll count the 48, the 49, at least if you're counting like the um, Karaite and the, the uh, Samaritan, uh, the, the 48th night of the Omer. Mm. What most of our populace don't understand is we are the Omer. There was a, a first offering, uh, Bikarim, the first fruits that was offered. Mm -hmm. it, it, the, the rest of the grain could not be released until the offering had been made. That's why we count the Omer up to Shavuot. I don't, I don't disregard Pentecost. I don't use Pentecost because that focuses on one day. It loses mm -hmm. power. Shavuot is a completion of weeks, seven complete cycles, seven Sabbaths, seven uh, weeks of counting, 49 days of the rest of us. We are the Omer. We are the first fruits, and he is the first of many. We talk about reaping the harvest, gathering in the, the sheaves. We're the sheaves. And this idea about th sharing his throne, the weight of his kingdom, Putting on his yoke, the precious ones will all be willing to do this. It's all the same thing. What's interesting, too, is the offering that's given the two bread loaves are not unleavened bread in this case. They're leavened. Leavened loaves oh. that are with waved before him. Oh, yes. And instead of hollow, it's rounded to remind them of crowns. Interesting. And there's two of them. We uh, will be getting together Sunday for Shavuot to do immersions and do the wave offering. The wave offering would be Hala, two rounded loaves. Two rounded loaves. Braided bread, as many coming together as one, but in a circle, reminding us of two crowns. His crown and the one we'll lay at his feet. Hmm. 
because it's a shared burden, a shared throne for those who are bound with him as the perfected, the bride. I think this, the fact that they're Levin also points to the one instance where Levin is uh, uh, related to glory instead of sin. Most of us hear of Levin and we think and heard it taught, which it is. It's taught as being uh, likened to a negative thing of sin, but then there's the instance where it's likened to the glory of God. And so two loaves wave before him that are leavened, that are filled with the glory, his glory, which is his presence. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Look at verse nine. Verse nine, I believe, is a continuation of the same quotation. Yes, I'm just making sure. Some it 40, is. six and seven. Yeah. So it, he, he expounds upon the uprightness of the kingdom that this, this uh, righteous son establishes. It says, you've loved righteousness. And to love righteousness, he continues. And you've hated wickedness. Uh, just like it says in Scripture, to fear the Lord is to actually not just turn from evil, but to actually hate evil. Um, I think we need to start redefining the fear of the Lord differently. But to to love righteousness here is not to tolerate wickedness. It's actually to have an abhor- a, a hatred for wickedness and evil, as Jesus did. That's what it means to love righteousness. You can't hold both. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. I, if I were you, I'd circle that word anointed um, because that's going to be unpacked in depth throughout the rest of the book with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Um, so, so note, not just the kingship and the throne, but the way by, that, by which he rules is, is loving righteousness, hating wickedness. And it says, therefore, because of the fact that Jesus um, you know, didn't love his life unto death, but gave it up in obedience to the Father. That's the hating, wickedness, loving righteousness. Because of that, there's an anointing taking place that is referred to as the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Um, we'll look at more of this anointing throughout the rest of the letter. But I, I will say this just for you guys to, to meditate on that anointing um, has profound implications on our lives. There's something about that, this anointing, I'm not going to spill the beans yet, but it is something that makes way for what we have now. Um, so it becomes an ex- an anointing that's extended to all those who will actually take refuge in the sun. When I think about the throne of, of Jesus, I think about, I just go with me for a minute, but in Genesis, essentially what God does is he establishes image bearers to rule, to govern, to cultivate the good world he gave them to steward under his authority. They were designed to do exactly what we see in verse 8. The problem is um, human beings, image bearers of God, with that opportunity to give in to sin, will. And so what we see is that since human beings failed, that what we have is not a, a government or a rule that's localized or sourced in the world, it actually transcends this world. In other words, God looks down and he goes, huh, the kind of rule that I wanted can't be, can't originate within man. It has to come from me. 
And that's exactly why the heavenly rule, the perfect rule of God actually invades the earth through Jesus to establish what humankind could not do on their own. Um, not to say there was no like real legitimate opportunity in the garden, but we did fail. And God brings, he doesn't just fix it by going, here's another person. He actually comes down himself. The eternal word takes on flesh and the perfect rule from heaven invades the earth so that the kingdom with it is something that cannot be ruined. And it's something that's established on uprightness because it's not sourced in just man. It originates in God. Um, and so this is a call, I think, back to the fact that we've been waiting for this ruler. We've been waiting for this king. And uh, we've had glimpses. We've had pick people that you know fit partially into the picture, but no one that perfectly captures it. And here's this anointed one. Um, so think about the connection between anointing and ascending the throne, you know, David getting anointed. But I think it goes beyond that. This is not just anointing in a coronation sense. This is anointing in what we'll see as a, a far greater sense. Um, so, later, Silver. Thanks for joining. I'm really hoping that you guys will jump in and share your thoughts because I know there are things standing out to you guys. Don't be... Um, shy. We're in Hebrews chapter one, verse nine, and uh, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. Nothing is silly. Nothing is, you know, ridiculous unless it actually is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, just share questions, comments, insights. Let's trust that the Lord will lead. If not, we'll move on to verse ten. Hi. Hi. So um, I heard something recently and I, I thought it was really cool because I never thought of it like this. But ever since um, God had told the serpent that um, he will bruise your head, you know, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, is it bruise his head? Oh, okay. I don't have my Bible right in front of me. But yeah. um, so what I heard said was that Ever since God had said that, the very next thing that happens is that um, Cain kills Abel. Mm. And um, so Satan has been after the seed ever since. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really interesting because even though, you know, he tried it again by going after Moses and killing the babies then and mm. then. Jesus was born and, and, um, you know, even before then, you know, uh, killing, killing babies. Then he's always been after the seed, but he never knew God's plan. So in reading Hebrews, it's so interesting because we don't know, even though we now have seen everything come to pass, we don't, we're barely understanding exactly who he is, you know? And I just, I just find it so amazing how it all connects back to Genesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, we do see that hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman immediately after in the children of Adam and Eve. It, and, and, you know, the enemy is so crafty. He's not just attacking the seed from one direction. He's actually establishing his own counterfeit, if you want to say it that way, his own counterfeit um, versions of what Jesus is called to be. So in other words, the serpent hears 
that the seed of the woman, this some human one is going to come and crush my head. No. So he'll establish his own counterfeit kings, his own counterfeit rulers, his own counterfeit, if you say, kingdom the, of darkness. Exactly. So the enemy is not just, he's coming from every direction, man. So it makes sense that surrounding cultures had their own almost Messiah narratives and their own conquering king kind of deified ruler narratives because of the fact that the enemy took that and ran with it in order to counterfeit and deceive and and uh, lead people astray uh, towards false messiahs. So it's interesting that that's always been something that's um, that he's been doing, man. So it's on us to know who the son really is um, because it does say in scripture that there will be a butt ton of people deceived, man, when um, there is a false messiah counterfeit antichrist head of darkness come who really really looks like he's the light and uh it's on us to know the sun well enough to go no that's not my king that's that's trash so verse 10 it says you lord you laid the foundation um of the earth in the beginning this is crazy man the the author of Hebrews is getting he's painting a better and better picture of the sun. He's just building this this beautiful picture, and he's better with each verse. It's it's one thing to be like he sits on the throne, he rules. It's another thing to be like, yeah, you were there, establishing the order of the cosmos, laying the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands; they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. <clears throat> so, you know, contrasted with the never-ending throne and kingdom of the sun are what's referred to as the perishing heavens and the earth, which Jesus says they will perish, but his word will remain. Um, so any thoughts? I'm just trying to lob you guys some softballs to hopefully get some discussion going because um, I want to hear your thoughts and questions and perspectives. Put your hand up if you have anything to share in the chat. Just a little hand emoji. That's all we need. That's all we're looking for. I'll sit here and wait because I, I talk too much. DJ, I'll, I'll let you read verse 11 and 12, or rather verse 12 when we get to it. No thoughts? How many people are in here? We got 37 people. No one has any thoughts. Yeah, Lighthouse, go ahead. What's your, Christina, go ahead. Yeah, my name's Christina. I'm like, is that the right hand? I'm not sure. Um, it's a okay, hand, I'll so, take it. So I did have a, kind of a question, and it's not meant to cause anyone to stumble. I just have this question because um, Jesus says, do not be deceived. Be not deceived. And he, because he said it so many times, I had a question on 
after he died and he resurrected and he kept coming back, right? So he appeared as a gardener. And then he started walking with two of his disciples, not necessarily the apostles, but two of his disciples. And um, they don't recognize that it's him. And then he goes and, of course, he shows himself. And so my question is, is like, okay, he can come back as whoever he wants. We know that, you know, we're to entertain strangers because we may entertain an angel unaware. So, but my question is in regards to, is he, are we supposed to be looking for him like that? I mean, we know it's Christ, right? We know Jesus is our Savior, our Messiah. Um, but why, why the confusion? Like, why would he say, don't be deceived when it just seems a little confusing? You know what I mean? Sure. What you're referring to post-resurrection is, I think, a different scenario than what he does paint as a future picture of uh, deception running rampant. So when Jesus appears post-resurrection, he's not easily detectable or recognized by even those closest to him um, because of the fact that there's some, there's some degree of spiritual misunderstanding. And we see Jesus correct that. He actually opens the minds of the apostles to understand how he fits into the, the Torah, how he fits into the Psalms and the writings and, and the prophets. So we do see that. Um, I think that's distinctly different from the kind of deception that will be prevalent in the end times. I don't believe Jesus is going to come with a Dollar Tree mustache on going like, it's not me, hey, it's me, it's not me, it's me. Who's going to know? I think what's happening is there are people who are predisposed to deception because they've rejected the gospel so much. They're in that vulnerable state of not recognizing Messiah because they've rejected him entirely and outright. Um, whereas, in other words, this doesn't become a conversation of, well, which Christians will recognize him and which won't. All of his people will know when he comes. I just don't believe it's on us to necessarily um, look for. A kind of return, but rather to expect, to long for, to pray for, and to position our lives for the return of Jesus and search for him in a spiritual sense rather than in a, is he in India kind of sense, you know? Um, and so when it talks about, I don't know, whatever gospel, it, I, oh, there, John put it on the in the chat, it talks about if possible, even the elect. That's a rabbit hole for sure that we probably can't explore today. But um, there seems to be in the prophecies of Jesus, depending on how you read Revelation and how you understand the history of Jerusalem in AD 70, it, there seems to be a lot of pointing to when the Romans will actually come in and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Um, and he's actually allowing people. In fact, I read this 